Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Coming up, troubling new data on mutations of the coronavirus. With the South African and UK variants now present in the Bay Area, a new study identifies a number of new variants that seem to have originated in the United States. We'll hear what's being done to contain them from quickly spreading and how genetic sequencing is being put to work to track how and where these new variants are going as reports of new and more contagious variations of the coronavirus accelerate. That's all ahead on Forum, right after this news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer. And before we get too far, let's not ignore the obvious. Beginning today, you're not going to be hearing Michael Krasny in this host chair. And with Michael's retirement, we know we have big shoes to fill, but we're pretty sure we think we can do it. And you might have heard already that Mina Kim has been named permanent host of the statewide 10 a.m. hour. And for the next several months, you're going to hear lots of different KQED voices here in the 9 o'clock hour, including me this week and next. And eventually, we'll have a permanent new host for the 9 o'clock hour. But for now, we hope to bring you lots of different voices and perspectives. And we look forward to hearing from you as well about what you want out of forum going forward. And with that, let's move on to our subject for the hour. It's an update on the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, Santa Clara and Alameda were the first counties in California to report finding the coronavirus variant from South Africa. And a new study published just yesterday says scientists continue to find new variants of the virus that seem to have started right here in the U.S. That news comes as California is creating mass vaccination sites to speed up immunizations before further mutations can make the virus even harder to manage. Now, of course, we just need more vaccines. In this hour, we'll get to the latest science on the new variants and how the different vaccines work against them, and also find out why California runs so few genetic sequencing tests compared to many other states. Joining us are Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at UCSF School of Medicine. Welcome. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And also joining us, Dr. Ewan Ashley. He's a professor of cardiovascular medicine and genetics at Stanford University. 
He's author of the Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries, and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. And we should say also that Dr. Ashley is on the board of AstraZeneca, which makes one of the coronavirus vaccines. Dr. Ashley, good to have you as well. Morning, Scott. Great to be here. And let me begin with you, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo. How prevalent are these two main variants, uh, at the moment anyway, the main variants, uh, the UK and South African variants here in the Bay Area? And, uh, you know, what do you think is the significance of that? Right. Well, the short answer is we don't really know. Um, uh, the, the reality is that uh, variants are to be expected with the type of virus that's circulating the coronavirus. Um, we don't do enough sequencing to really understand the prevalence of these variants. The variants are significant because they appear to be more transmissible, and uh, and some um, may make uh, some of the our strategies like vaccinations somewhat less effective. So it's important that we really understand how common they are, and because of their high transmissibility, we expect that they will continue to uh, rise in um, in their importance in the U.S., but we don't quite know because we don't sequence quite enough. Well, and uh, let's get to that very question with you, Dr. Ashley. Why is it that California and the nation really don't do more genetic sequencing? Well, I think it comes down to uh, leadership at the end of the day. Uh, we've had the technology to do sequencing of humans and of viruses for a long time. And I think recognizing that variants were inevitable, we really needed to get ahead of this. Uh, fortunately, uh, we're picking up speed uh, and a number of uh, Bay Area uh, sequencing labs have started to work closely together. Uh, we uh, in, at Stanford and at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and UCSF have been working closely together since the beginning of the pandemic to try to understand the different variants that we have. But this hasn't been a California statewide uh, mandate or a statewide effort until now. But we're picking up speed and uh, hopefully we should soon uh, be able to have a better handle on this. But to give you an idea, we're really quite far behind uh, most places would suggest that perhaps we should sequence around 5% of the cases in order to really get a good handle on what new variants are arising. We're currently at around 0.3%, and so quite far behind and quite a, a way to catch up, but fortunately with people working together, and when you say we're we, starting to move in that direction. When you say we, do you mean California or the nation? The nation, unfortunately, uh, is, is reflective of California. There aren't really statewide uh, and, and nationwide uh, too, too much variation. Uh, compared to some other countries uh, like the UK, where they've been a bit further ahead with this particular aspect. Across the nation in the US, we get in some places, Washington State, for example, above 2%, uh, but but nowhere really hitting the 5% mark that we really feel that we would need to follow these variants in the way that we would like. And so, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, the two cases of the South African variant that we did find in the Bay Area, was that just luck that they were discovered? Well, in, in uh, not quite luck, ex uh, except uh, acknowledging how little sequencing that we're doing. Once a variant is known, there are ways to uh, start to look for that variant. I think that uh, that the challenge without doing um, more sequencing is that um, we need to find the variants that we know. We also need to find those ones that might continue to emerge. And both of those are important strategies for really um, understanding the nature of the virus that's being transmitted at any given time and using that to guide our public health responses. And, and, and uh, I think that's the key point here. Yeah. And how are the responses different uh, for the variants, if at all? 
Right. So, you know, so in some ways, the, the responses are exactly the same. Uh, the ones that we have right now suggest that uh, the, the biggest concern is the higher uh, transmissibility. But the way to combat that is that uh, is to double down on the measures that we know, masking, distancing, increased ventilation, uh, those types of strategies, and, and can hopefully keep our, our transmission rates under control. Um, some of the guidance from the CDC regarding double masking really, uh, I think, uh, speaks to the fact that there is concern about the increased transmissibility and wanting to make sure that our current public health measures are as effective as possible. But others, when you know that a variant um, that is starting to emerge, might include um, restricting types of travel, might include um, more specific contact tracing uh, to, to make sure that a particular variant, when it's present, really we try to contain it in measures more specific. Uh, all of these are, are tools within our armamentarium. And as we look to the longer-term effectiveness of the, vac- the vaccines in controlling the virus, we really want to understand uh, which vaccines are, are most effective against the particular variant. We have a variety of different approaches we could use, but right now flying blind is not the one we want to lead with. Never a good idea if you can avoid that. Uh, Dr. Ashley, when we say, as you know, Dr. Bibbins Domingo just did, that these variants, some of them are more transmissible, more contagious, what exactly does that mean? Well, much of the data that we have from this comes from really understanding who's infected where, so some of these sequencing studies. And what we know is that this, these kinds of variants uh, these will arise with coronaviruses. And so what we do is look across populations and see which variants are um, expressed or which variants are found in the sequencing at what percentage. And what we see is that as we look at the transmission dynamics, which is to say that the spread of that virus within a given population, we can compare the different variants. And when we see one that starts to overexpress itself, if you like, uh, to outcompete the other earlier variants, what we sometimes call the ancestral variants, then we can start to model that with the idea that it is more transmissible. Uh, it does mean that the sorts of uh, masks, distancing, ventilation uh, that uh, Dr. Bivens Domingo just mentioned, it, it makes that even more important. They absolutely work in the same way. And so I think that there's there's nothing that we need to do differently. We just need to double down and make sure we're doing those same things. But uh, studies step definitely show within the population. And also we can do studies in the lab uh, that demonstrate for these new variants that they're more able uh, to get into the cells because of the binding of the virus uh, with the receptors on the surface of the cell. So they're more transmissible in the sense once they've infected the body as opposed to being like you need fewer, uh, you know, a smaller viral load in a room, for example? I mean, does it mean, what, what, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, bore down a little bit to see what exactly that means. How much, you know, how much more do we need to do more distancing? Do we, what, what more do we need to do to protect ourselves from the variants or should we just keep doing what we're doing? I think we need to do what we're trying to do, but better. Uh, ultimately, it's very hard to tease apart when we have these new virus, viral variants what exactly it is about the variants that, that makes them more transmissible. When we see something more transmissible, it means we see it out competing these other variants in a population. If, if we go into the lab, then we can see that perhaps the change in, in the, the spike protein of the virus makes it easier to enter cells, and that might be what's partly being reflected. But the very good news is if, if we do everything that we know, remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we really didn't know a lot about the aerosolization, for example, the airborne nature of, of the virus. 
there were many aspects of this that we didn't understand. But at this point in the pandemic, we understand those very well. And what everybody should know and remember is that the same things we've been doing to a greater or lesser extent are going to work for this virus. We just need to keep doing them and, and perhaps to, to do them more effectively. That That's all we need to do for these new variants. There's nothing new that we need to do. It's the old things, but doing them better. And Dr. Bivens, the- yeah, please go ahead. One of the one of the signs of that is looking at uh, the remarkable rise in cases in South Africa, and then now we're seeing a remarkable fall in cases. And really, that speaks to uh, that is a variant. Obviously, the variant that's circulating in South Africa is one that that we are all very concerned about. But the cases have come down uh, to large extent because of the very things that we know work: the masking, the distancing, the ventilation, the general hygiene, and those types of things. Um, but it is important that we know and understand the viral dynamics throughout the pandemic. We, in a very short period of time of this one year of the pandemic, have learned so much about viral transmission and the specific ways in which uh, this this particular coronavirus really um, wreaks havoc in, in the body. And we've learned so much more about the types of strategies we need to do to, to combat it. Um, that's why it's important to keep ahead of the game on the new variant. But at this point, it is also important to know that the strategies that we um, that we need to that, that we've already been engaged in up to now but as dr. Ashley said that we know work those are the ones we need to double down on and the evidence from other countries is that those strategies in fact do work yeah and and, and dr. Bibbins Dominguez do we uh, you may have heard over the weekend we actually you know what I hear the music <laughs> so what that means is uh, we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll continue our conversation about the new variants that have uh, popped up in the Bay Area and across California and uh, we want to hear from you as well you can give us a call at 866-733-6786 what is on your mind about these new variants what you need to do to protect yourself and your family again it's 866-733-6786 you can also get on touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or if you prefer you can email us it's forum at kqed.org i'm scott schaefer stay with us Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here today. In this hour, we're getting a Bay Area coronavirus update, including concern over the arrival of these new variants we've been hearing about. Our guests are Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo. She's a professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF's School of Medicine. And Dr. Ewan Ashley, he's a professor of cardiovascular medicine and genetics at Stanford, also author of The Genome Odyssey, Medical Mysteries, and The Incredible Quest to Solve Them. 
And uh, what I was what I was going to ask Dr. Bibbins Domingo as we got to that break is um, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who, uh, as you know, is a well-known epidemiologist. Uh, he's worked in the past to eradicate polio and smallpox. And there was an article in the Chronicle this morning in which he says it's going to be years, not months, before we really get the upper hand against this virus. What do you what do you think of that? Well, the truth is, he—he he, well, he—he's—he's he's probably right. But I think that we shouldn't—we uh, should really understand what that means. Um, we are extraordinarily fortunate to have uh, not one, but likely three highly effective uh, vaccines that are available to us. All of the vaccines that we have data for right now suggest that they are nearly perfect at preventing severe disease and death. That means that uh, the coronavirus pandemic that causes these this extraordinary that has has caused this extraordinary uh, numbers of deaths in the U.S. and around the world, the extraordinary uh, overload of our hospital systems uh, in the U.S. and around the world, that is likely very likely to get better and get better soon, even in the face of the variant. What is probably going to be the case, though, is that we are going to be living with um, people getting infected with coronavirus for for an extended period of time. It'll likely be that we will continue to have uh, these vaccinations as well as booster shots over time, that we will have to um, that we'll have outbreaks that happen over time. But I think the really extreme toll in the U.S. and around the world of uh, severe disease and death that will get better, and that will get better really in an extraordinary way because of the vaccines that we now have available to us. And so the people who continue to get infected, are, are, are they most likely to not have been vaccinated, or will there be variants that are able to get through the vaccination, the protection of the vaccination? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we are concerned about with um, with the variant that is circulating in South Africa and that we've observed here now is that is its ability to evade the immune system. And that means that there is a higher concern for reinfection, as well as a concern that even with vaccination, that, um, that there will be um, ability to be infected. But again, what I would love for people to understand is how much of a game changer the vaccines actually are, because even in the face of the new variants, even in the face of the possibility that these variants may actually uh, evade the immune system to some extent, this is still likely to mean uh, less severe infection with reinfection, and that over time what we'll be talking about is less severe disease with coronavirus infection. So it is true that the pandemic is not likely to just stop dead in its tracks, but it is also true that uh, that the severe disease and death that we've really come to uh, to understand and be associated with coronavirus infections um, will will likely be be substantially less. So maybe it becomes more like background noise as opposed to uh, screaming headlines every day. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I think if you look at that with many of the viral infections, that's exactly what's happened. And we've become used to, for example, every year getting our flu shots and knowing that some years it's, it's worse than others. But, but we're fairly used to a rhythm of, of every year getting a shot in order to protect us from, from, uh, from, from influenza. And so I think it will be 
it will start to be uh, something that is more routine and we will be living with this virus. But I think our lives will change from what we have known over this past year. All right. I want to go to the phones. And if you have any questions for our guests, give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also send us an email if you prefer, forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. We're at KQED Forum. And I think we're going to start with Colin in San Francisco. Colin? Good morning. Um, as somebody who's uh, in his 50s with uh, you know, uh, at least one chronic medical condition or, you know, um, I can't get a appointment um, to get vaccinated from uh, my health insurance carrier. And I hear stories of people who ostensibly are working in healthcare who are much younger with uh, no health issues, um, who may not even be physically seeing patients um, getting the vaccine. I'd just like to know from the um, panelists uh, whether they think the um, you know, the shifting prioritization by the California Department of Public Health has really, um, you know, served the state well. And, um, you know, if there's any shift in strategy that should be made uh, in light of what we know about the variants. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Colin, thanks so much. And I think shifting is the operative word there. Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, I mean, we've seen so many changes and it's confusing if you try to sign up for a vaccine. There's the counties. Some counties have signups. The state has a sign-up. Some health plans have sign-ups. I mean, it's very, it is very confusing, isn't it? It's very confusing. It's very confusing. I, I every day try to keep up with with what uh, what the, the shifting strategies are, and it's confusing for for many reasons. Starting first and foremost with we just don't have enough vaccine in California to vaccinate all of the priority population. So that is that is really it, it starts right there. And then is the then there is the way in which the vaccines have been distributed uh, to the different health systems to deliver to the different departments of public health. And that has only added to, um, I think, confusion and frustration for someone like the caller uh, who really wants uh, to figure out for themselves how they can um, get to the vaccination that they need. And so um, so it, it's an extraordinarily frustrating situation, begins with not enough supply of the vaccine, but certainly made much more confusing by the ways in which the vaccines are actually distributed, and then these shifting tiers. I think for the caller who has a, an underlying health condition, the announcement this past week that uh, that people under 65 um, who are not prioritized just on the basis of age, um, but who have an underlying medical condition, that that would move them into the priority list. And I think that that is a really important, and I think certainly for the caller, that is really important. We know that from hospitalization, people who are hospitalized, actually um, a majority of the hospitalizations for uh, COVID-19 happen in people under 65, but people who do have another health condition like the caller is talking about. And that is the reason that those individuals will be prioritized. But as all of you uh, are likely have heard about, um, you know, many of our vaccine sites in the Bay Area have actually 
taken a, a, a week hiatus because there's not enough supply in the Bay Area. Well, and that really adds to the confusion and the frustration because just Friday, the governor and mayor, London Breed, did a tour of the vaccination center at Moscone. And then over the weekend, they say it's going to be closed. I mean, it's it's really jerks people around emotionally. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that that speaks to there, there are two, at least two levels of this problem. One is we just need more supply coming from um, the vaccine manufacturers, from the federal government to the state. And then we need a better distribution system within the state uh, to make sure that the people who are prioritized are able to get the vaccines that they need. And we need a better communication system. I think, ironically, um, we opened up these mass uh, vaccination sites because we were very, we were particularly inefficient in California. We were concerned about that. We were at the bottom of the list and we wanted to get vaccines to people more quickly. The problem with the big vaccination sites is when the supply runs out, then you have to close the big vaccination sites. You really need a, a, a steady and reliable uh, supply chain of vaccines in order to make those large vaccination sites really um, uh, address the problem that you're trying to address. And unfortunately, what we've seen is that we don't just quite have the supply yet. Yeah. All right. Let's go next to San Francisco. And George, welcome. How's it going? I'm wondering about the distinction between naturally induced antibodies and vaccine-induced antibodies, because you hear a lot about the efficacy of the um, vaccine-induced antibodies uh, and the variants and how new um, vaccines are being updated to to do those. But I'm wondering about how effective it is for the um, the naturally-induced antibodies for people who have just had the disease. Yeah, Dr. Ashley? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that it's an important distinction to make because obviously the pandemic's been going on some time and many people have now been infected with this so-called ancestral variant. And and meanwhile, these new variants are coming along. What the vaccines do, of course, is express in various ways, either as the protein itself or using the genetic code uh, of the virus, the the major protein through which the virus uh, enters cells, the spike protein that you might have heard of. So First thing is that the good news is that regardless of whether you are vaccinated or you've had the infection yourself, your immune system will will respond essentially with an army of antibodies. And by spooling up an army of of these uh, killer cells uh, called T cells that, that that have memory. And so they will remember what you've been infected with or what you've been vaccinated with. And they'll be and they'll after the initial assault, if you like, they will uh, step back and uh, hold, hold on to themselves uh, in the body and be ready for the next time. So it's, a, in, in essence, a very complicated question. There was a very nice study uh, just, just out last week that showed for people who've had a previous infection with the kind of original uh, variant of the virus, if you like, and then received either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, then their antibody levels actually rose up even beyond those who'd had two doses of the vaccine. And in fact, one study specifically showed that against this uh, B1351, the so-called South African variant, in fact, they had significant antibody responses against that that would suggest they'd be protected. So at the end of the day, I think we, we, we shouldn't count out our immune systems. Uh, they're incredibly diverse in their ability to respond. Uh, They have this memory that will continue whether you've had vaccination or early infection uh, and they'll be ready uh, to respond to new variants, as will our vaccine manufacturers. As Kirsten just mentioned, uh, all the major manufacturers are now working on booster shots that will specifically take account 
uh, of these new variants. And I think that the supply uh, concern will, will become less of a concern, thankfully, uh, through the course of March and certainly by April. I think most estimates would suggest we'll have enough uh, vaccines for everyone. And fair to say that as these additional vaccines come on board, like the Johnson & Johnson one, maybe AstraZeneca as well, uh, that you shouldn't try to game it out. Just take the one that's offered to you, even if you, for some reason, think you want the other one. Yeah, I think this is the question I get asked uh, pretty much every day in my <laughs> clinical life by patients, you know, which vaccine uh, should I take? And I answer the same thing every time. The answer is the first one that you're offered. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as, as Kirsten mentioned a moment ago, it's they have been a spectacular success. I mean, there's been many low points, of course, in the pandemic for many, many families across this nation and others. But one of the high points has been the absolutely spectacular efficacy of these vaccines, essentially 100 percent effective against severe disease and hospitalization, which is really what has brought down the nations and brought down the healthcare systems is the severe disease, the hospitalization. And if these vaccines are capable of, of turning this into a, a common cold, essentially, or certainly mild cold illness, then that by itself is, is, a, is a major, major change that will allow us all to, to move on with our lives. All right, George, thanks very much for that good question. And let's go now to up to Lake County. Shannon, you're next. Yes, good morning. Good morning. I'm eight. I'm 80 years old, and my daughter is 45 years old. Uh, on the same day, we both got uh, inoculated, wonder of wonders, with the um, Moderna vaccine. She got sick as a dog. She was out for a day and a half. I, I feel no results. My question is, does, this, does the intensity or severity of, of the human body's response bear any relationship to how effective the vaccine is likely to be? Good question, uh, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo. And there's a lot of variation, isn't there, among, you know, each person has a different re response. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's such a great question. And I think your experience of you, yours and your daughter's um, mirrors what what, uh, what was observed in, in many of the trials, um, that, uh, that we saw more, uh, more people who had uh, reactions after the, after the vaccine, uh, after vaccination, were in the younger groups. So, uh, so and these are things that, um, like you're suggesting, usually pain in the arm, fevers, chills, body aches, but very time limited. But many people do have them for that report that they are out for a day or two days. And the 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 idea here is probably that it, it is the immune system working the way we want the vaccine to work and that younger people actually have a more robust immune system and that is why they unfortunately are more likely to have some of these side effects that happen for the day or day and a half after the vaccination. So not to, not to worry. Then. Not to worry, but I also wouldn't worry that the, that the vaccine is not effective in the caller. Um, I think that what has also been remarkable in these studies is um, the inclusion of, of older people in these trials and, uh, and the evidence that these vaccinations, these vaccines are actually working in older adults also. So I think it is true that the side effects most likely reflect the immune system's response, response to the vaccination as you'd like it to be. But the absence of that response doesn't mean that the vaccine is not working. Shannon, does that respond to your concern? Thank you so much. 
Goodbye. All right. Good luck to you and to your daughter. Let's read some comments now. Todd writes, are the existing PCR or antigen COVID-19 tests able to catch variants or is there a risk the known test could be missing unknown variants? And Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Ashley, but I don't think those really uh, are intended to catch the kind, uh, uh, the version, the uh, the variant. It's just whether or not you've been infected, right? Well, it depends on the type of test that's uh, being performed. The, the PCR test is a very specific test where you use essentially knowledge of the sequence of the virus in order to amplify up uh, little sections of it and then and then read those out. And... Um, Obviously, the, the, the little parts that you use to amplify those up, if they were to fall in one of the areas in which there's a variant, then there could potentially be a, a challenge with, with that. But in fact, for most of the tests and most of the, we call them primers, those little pieces that are used to amplify up, they, they're away from these areas. And certainly knowledge of the new variants would mean that they could very rapidly be adapted if that were uh, necessary. The other tests that we've heard about, the more rapid tests are based on proteins, we call them antigen tests. And for those, it's it's a similar thing, It's real, but this time relating to the three-dimensional structure of, of the protein, it would have to change really quite significantly to escape uh, detection with those devices. But for each individual one and for each individual variant, uh, it would be safest uh, to be testing that. But uh, believe me, the, the teams uh, who are working on those technologies are, are on top of that. And Dr. Ashley, come, we're coming up on a break, but I've been reading that all the variants seem to have the mutation on the same part of the virus genome. What's the significance of that? Well, I, essentially, the variants that we see are the ones that survive. So if we were to sequence literally every single person infected, we would catch all sorts of other variants that, that have not, if you like, out-selected themselves in order to survive. Uh, but uh, the critical ones are those that are likely to escape. And one of the reasons it's so important to, to get to those patients, for example, who are immunocompromised and get those uh, patients vaccinated as early as possible is that the virus can mutate within individuals who don't have as robust immune systems yeah. as others, also, to, you know, to protect them and to protect yeah. everyone else would be right. really important. Okay, we need to take a break and we're going to continue this conversation with our guests about the variants and just a general update on the COVID-19 pandemic. Give us a call now. It's 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. We'll be back in just a minute. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today, and my guests are Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo from UCSF School of Medicine, and Dr. Ewan Ashley, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine and Genetics at Stanford. And let's go right to the phones. And Justin, in San Francisco, you're next. Hey there. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Um, I know that information is so important right now for people. I'm a 35-year-old educator here in San Francisco, I'm unable to work right now because of an underlying health condition. And my question is around access to the vaccine 
Um, I'm in the tier 1B waiting to get a vaccine and that bureaucratic process and SF to, to work out. In the meantime, a lot of my friends and peers have been posting on social media, got my first dose, got my <laughs> Yeah, um, we, it seems like we may have lost Justin, but uh, Dr. Uh, Bibbins-Domingo, what are your thoughts about that? You know, people kind of, uh, you know, everyone uses social media now to kind of, uh, you know, kind of I get brag. It's usually a, sort of a highlights reel of people's lives. Um, what should folks do, um, you know, to sort of block that out and just stay focused on getting getting the vaccine when it's your turn? Right. Uh, you know, I, I think this is your caller and, and several of your callers are speaking to the real frustration that people are, are feeling right now. Um, and I think that, um, you know, again, we, we need more vaccines. That's that's the fundamental problem. And it is likely that we're going to get them soon. But then you also have this uh, because of the way that the vaccines that we do have have been distributed to different health systems and to different counties. There is um, a real perception that, wow, in another county, I would have been able to be vaccinated, but I'm, I'm not because I'm in this county. Or if I were in a different system, I would be able to, but I'm not, even though I fall into a group that currently is eligible for the vaccine. And I think that is adding to the frustration. I think, um, I think we need to get uh, to be able to communicate uh, to uh, Californians better, to people in the Bay Area better. That is essential to this process. I think we need to have much more uh, streamlined ways of um, understanding how we can access uh, uh, vaccines when it is uh, when when we will be eligible and how one makes appointments in order to do that. And um, my hope is that we, we not just improve supply, but also improve um, the way in which we, we communicate and really make the vaccine vaccines accessible uh, to the public. So much of, of vaccines is really about uh, the trust that the public has in, in the distribution system, in the priorities. Um, and I think that we all understand that we, um, we, we, we can wait in line. Um, we understand that when supplies are limited, we can't all rush to, to be vaccinated at exactly the same time. But I think the frustration is made worse when uh, the communication is not clear, when the process is not clear. Um, and I think that that is what you're hearing right now among many Californians. And that's what I hope we'll be able to see some improvements in over time. Yeah, actually, all things considered, people have been fairly well behaved and patient, I'd have to say. Let's um, let's go to Don's comment here. He writes, can the guests discuss what's happening in the field of treatment of the virus once a person might get it? And I'll put that question to you, Dr. Ashley, as well as how might genetic sequencing be put to work in uh, developing treatments? Well, great question again. And, and I think this is another success story within the pandemic because really in, in an earth shattering, with earth shattering speed, uh, trials have been put together of new uh, medications that can potentially help the virus. And so we're in a much better spot than we were before. People have probably heard of dexamethasone, a steroid treatment that was shown in a large randomized trial in the UK to save lives in this condition. Just recently in the last week, uh, there's another uh, immune uh, medication called tocilizumab that has also been shown both in combination with dexamethasone to have that benefit. You might have heard of antibody treatment that we know if we give it early enough, that can have very specific 
uh, and sig significant improvement up to 70%, reduced hospitalization and death in one study, and even now uh, blood thinners that you may have heard about. So we now have uh, really a, a significant armamentarium against the virus. If you were unlucky enough to be one of those people to be extremely sick, remember that most people still don't get too many symptoms at all. They're either, either maybe 40% or asymptomatic, maybe 40% have mild symptoms. So we're still talking about a small number of people. But remember also that uh, a small percentage of a very large number is still quite a large number. And that's why we've had these challenges with the healthcare systems being overloaded. The good news is though, that we have these therapies that we, that we didn't have before. And the other part of the question, of course, is the uh, genome sequencing. And I think we haven't understood very well since the beginning of the pandemic why some people are greatly affected and other people have no symptoms at all. And we have started to move along with that, thankfully, because of our understanding and knowledge of the human genome and, and also the human immune system. We're starting to get a much better idea of who might be likely to have very significant symptoms and be potentially at risk for hospitalization and who might not. And that's because of really large numbers of scientists across both uh, this nation and internationally coming together to share the data. It's really been kind of a man. It's, excuse me. It's really been sort of a, a yeah. modern day Manhattan project in a way. A lot of scientists just sort of dropping what they were doing to work on this. I've n never seen a time, honestly, where, when scientists have moved with such singular a purpose towards the same end. And, it, and I think you, we're seeing the results of that now with these spectacularly efficacious vaccines and multiple proven therapies that work re really well. Uh, it's been an, an incredible time. And then with this international cooperation, pushing ahead even faster. Here's a comment from Gelia who writes, are the ingredients and dosage of the first and second jab the same? Uh, should both be from the same manufacturer, Pfizer, Moderna, and why more reaction from the second one? And let me just also add that it seemed like uh, in Britain for a time, they were they were mixing and matching. They were they were using the second dose could be a different one from the first. And I, so I don't know if that's still going on, but Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, what are your thoughts? Right. So I think the recommendation right now is that for the, the two dose, the two mRNA vaccinations that are the vaccines that are approved, um, that one that the first dose and the second dose come from the same same manufacturer. So if you got Pfizer on the first one, you get Pfizer for the second one. Both of these are mRNA vac vaccines. Both of them have a, a similar way in which they work. Um, so, uh, uh, but but the recommendation is that that one one gets uh, the same uh, the same manufacturers for the second dose as for the first. I think that there has been a lot of interest in thinking through way, strategies to make our rollout more efficient. And the efficiency and the, the various efficiency arguments have have really come in the flavor of could we delay the second dose even longer? Because it turns out the first dose seems to work pretty well. Um, do we really need to have it, the second dose be uh, from the same manufacturer if we have more of the other manufacturer's dose available? Could, could that help with efficiencies? And I think what you see in the UK, for example, is is a lot of um, of trying to uh, trying to improve efficiencies by by um, by making these small tweaks in the protocols based on some of the evidence that's emerging. In the U.S., I think we've we've taken to the we want to keep the um, you know the same manufacturers. We also have there's some flexibility in the timing of the second dose, um, but really the the recommendation is to keep to the second dose at least within the six weeks of the first dose, and um, um, and I think that that is really just grounded in trying to adhere most closely to the way the trials actually played themselves out. 
I do think over time you'll see a little bit more variation in all of this, recognizing that we don't think that these are going to be the vaccines for the rest of your life, and most likely they're going to need to be boosted, and you'll start to see a little bit more variation. But that's because we want the data to come in, and I think that's what we want to emphasize here. Throughout the pandemic, we have to emphasize leading with what we know, what the science tells us now, and understanding that we're always accumulating more evidence, and that tells us how we can adjust over time. And Dr. Ashley, we haven't talked much about AstraZeneca, that vaccine. You were on the board of AstraZeneca, and it seemed like there were some irregularities or inconsistencies with the dosing in those trials that have delayed it being approved uh, here in the U.S. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, just to say, first of all, that I, I speak from a personal perspective, not not representing uh, the official spokesperson uh, of AstraZeneca. But yes, indeed, the, the study um, and the vaccine that AstraZeneca has been uh, distributing uh, came, first of all, from Oxford University. And so many of the studies have been run, of course, by the Oxford University team. And, and what they've been doing is putting together a number of smaller studies, whereas what you've seen with Pfizer and Moderna is uh, the FDA suggested doing one very large study. And I think that has led to some of the, what, what might be regarded as confusing uh, messages. I think uh, in particular, um, the, the, uh, there are uh, several uh, groups that have been, have been looked at, in particular, the, the most recent data from the South Africa variant uh, was, was published last week. And I think that led to a lot of concern uh, because that particular study uh, showed a, a, a small uh, benefit for that vaccine. But in fact, I think what the most important thing to remember about that study is that it really, uh, the confidence intervals, this is to say, how confident can we be of that result, were extremely wide. So there were 42 events and there were 23 uh, in the group uh, that got the placebo and, and uh, 19 in the group that got the vaccine. But in reality, this is a little bit like when the election results come in and you sort of look a bit early. It's not really very clear at the beginning what's going to win out in the end. And in fact, those results were consistent either with an effect where the vaccine wasn't helping at all, all the way up to where the vaccine was actually 60% effective, which is equivalent to the flu vaccine. So it's just a little bit too early to say uh, whether the the AstraZeneca vaccine has efficacy against uh, that 351 variant uh, from South Africa. The last thing to say just about that is that particular study was done in, in South Africa with young people who only got mild disease. So we, we don't have any evidence yet from that study uh, in terms of how the, the vaccine uh, is effective against severe disease. But the FDA trial in the U.S. Uh, will be reporting out just over the next few weeks. So there'll be a lot more data coming mm. soon. And all of that reflects really how quickly all this is going. I mean, ordinarily, you would have more thorough and longer uh, times for these trials, wouldn't you? You would. I mean, it's, it's a spectacular feat, really, to get from the point of essentially uh, sequencing the virus, which happened uh, very early on. You, you know, the, the first cases, of course, were in December. The virus was sequenced on January the 10th of last year. And by a week later, there was essentially a vaccine that was designed uh, by the NIH in collaboration with uh, Moderna. And those trials had begun two months later. I mean, this is just incredible. And then six months after that, those trials were finished, 70,000 participants enrolled. So all the, uh, all the steps that would normally be done were done. This is a worry some of our patients have that maybe it happened a little too fast. But it did happen fast, but it's because all the paperwork was done rapidly. There were no gaps between. It was really done as fast as, as was physically possible. And so it was done really with the, with the utmost care and attention. And those were really state-of-the-art trials showing really unprecedented results. I think we'd all have hoped 
that if we could get 60, 70% like a flu vaccine effectiveness against any symptomatic disease, we'd be happy. And yet we were finding these numbers in, in the high 90% for any symptomatic disease and 100% for severe disease and hospitalization. Just, just spectacular results. Yeah, really extraordinary. All right, let's go back to the phones. And Dan in Greenbrae, you've been very patiently waiting. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, thanks. So I think uh, the optimism about what things might be like a few years down the road, um, I'd like to hear a little more detail on that because we've got several things going on. Um, the, the comment that uh, we just get used to getting a vaccine, uh, you know, every year or something like that. Well, the thing is, is that uh, the number of people who actually get the flu vaccine is really proportionally low. And yeah, we have a lot of flu illnesses, but the illness that you actually get from the flu uh, is not nearly as bad as what it can be for COVID. What makes COVID so interesting is, as you point out, such a large percentage of people don't show any symptoms at all. So when you get a large population, like 20, 30 percent of the population that never gets vaccinated because they don't seem to care, well, now they're starting to infect everybody else. Mm. So I don't think it's going to be that simple. And I think that policies are this is going to affect yeah. policies. Yeah. Well, let me let me put that to Dr. Bibbins Domingo. I mean, if vaccines or booster shots, uh, as we're describing here, are, are become the norm, I mean, do we need to start thinking about educating people differently so that they do uh, get in line sooner or more regularly than most people do now for the flu shot? Right. I think the caller is bringing up a really important point. We've spent time talking about uh, viral dynamics, but, but a lot of this is about um, uh, human behavior and population dynamics, right? Um, so we, we want to vaccinate quickly so that we can uh, figure out how to make sure that these variants don't really become the dominant um, part of the, the pandemic. But we also know that um, that a small proportion of the population is really um, doesn't want to be vaccinated. And then a larger proportion um, has questions about the about the vaccines. And I think we have to pay as much attention uh, to human behavior as we do to viral behavior at this particular point. And um, and I think of this not just on um, on how we communicate about um, about uh, the safety and the efficacy of, of the vaccination, but also how we reduce barriers for people who do want to get them. I think we have spent a, a lot of time talking about people being hesitant, but not enough time talking about the things that your callers have talked about, which is, uh, which is really the, the access barriers right now uh, to vaccines and how that is, um, uh, might be uh, sort of playing into also uh, some of the hesitancy. And then I think there are the equity issues also. Let's, uh, let's just acknowledge the fact that the virus is not circulating equally in all communities. It's circulating in many, in some communities have been really uh, disproportionately affected with uh, um, hospitalizations and death. So we have to figure out how we uh, reduce barriers, make sure that um, we get uh, vaccines to where the virus actually is, and communicate effectively and in a, and, um, and in a trustworthy manner uh, so that we can make sure that, that everyone, all communities in California, um, are able to, be, uh, to, to have access to these vaccinations and to take uh, uh, these, these vaccines. That is, in fact, a big part of the key to, uh, 
to uh, returning to some semblance of the way our lives were before the pandemic. So it's going to require action on all of these fronts. Yeah. Dan, thanks very much for that question. A lot of comments from listeners, including Richard, who writes, how should a vaccinated person conduct themselves? (laughs) I assume that means with regard to the virus. Uh, Dr. Ashley? Well, of course, uh, this is uh, a little bit of a challenge right now in the sense that we're looking to vaccines to, to break us free, to, to give us our lives back. And we will get there. I think everyone needs to remember that we just need to get the numbers down in, in the community in order to get to be able to return to prior behaviors. One of the challenges is this question that you might have heard that while the vaccine can protect you from severe disease and protect you even from, from mild disease, you may, may be asymptomatic, it's still possible that you could transmit the virus to others. So it, the, the key is being careful in, in who you're around. Uh, if you are spending time with other people who are not yet vaccinated and, and in high-risk groups, it's not impossible you could pass the virus on to them. So I think, especially for something as simple as masking, I think we're, we're all uh, uh, consistently uh, suggesting that those who are vaccinated continue with that for some time until we get community transmission down. But of course, we do look with hope uh, to the future when we get the, the numbers of vaccinated people high enough that we really start to get the numbers really far down and can start to get our lives back. Yeah, of course, we're all looking forward to that day. And uh, we're getting short on time, but let me just ask you, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, quickly. Uh, as an incentive to be careful uh, with all this, there are some long-term complications, are there not, uh, with with getting the virus, even if you, you know, recover. I mean, there are lingering impacts. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. So we've talked a lot about severe disease and death. Um, but I think what is also emerging and uh, we're learning more about every day is how many people really have long-term uh, sequelae to their uh, coronavirus infection. And it is one of those things that I, I really want people to understand as they as they think about and question whether the vaccine is for them. Yeah. Um, we, we, um, it is really important to understand that, that the consequences of coronavirus okay. infection include many things, yeah. including the long-term. Afraid, afraid we have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo from UCSF School of Medicine and Dr. Ewan Ashley, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine and Genetics at Stanford University. Thank you both. And thanks to our listeners. So many questions. Sorry we didn't get to them all, but thank you so much for being engaged. Scott Schaefer, I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.